Well, this morning we will finish a short series on conscience. And we've called this conscience God's deputy in the soul because the conscience is God's representative in each one of us, speaking for God. In the first message, we looked at the conscience in mankind. We talked about what conscience is and how everyone has a conscience. In the second message, we looked at the conscience in the Christian life. So we talked about training your conscience according to God's word, about how to have a conversation with your conscience and how to keep a good conscience. And today, we're going to look at the conscience in the public square. Specifically, what should you do when your conscience differs with the governing authorities? And I'm going to warn you, this message is going to be a little bit longer than the other ones because it's a very complex subject. I'm just going to ask you to hang with me as we go through this. So we're going to begin with a sort of quick overview of government as God has designed it. We've talked about that before, um, and because we have to be very brief on that this morning, I'll just refer you back to those messages if you want to dig in a little bit more on that topic. And then what I want to do is consider five areas in which conscience may lead you to do something other than to simply submit to the authorities and obey them. And for each one, we will look at a Bible passage or story, and then oftentimes also what we can learn a little bit from church history. And let me just say this at the outset, I want you to hear clearly, the Bible is the authority. So when I bring in church history or quote someone or something like that, understand that that the purpose of that is for us to learn from those who've gone before us and how they understood scripture, but the scripture is the final authority. And we need to remember that. All right, so let's begin with an overview here, the conscience and the government. Romans 13, and this is a passage, if you're paying attention in the Christian world, that has been brought up over and over in recent days because this is kind of the standard passage when we think about obeying the government. So Romans chapter 13, there are others, but this is the one that maybe gives us the most detail. And before we read this, let me just ask you a question for food for thought. If you had the opportunity this morning to speak with the people in Afghanistan, whether that was Afghani nationals or American Christians who are now trapped there, would you tell them that they should obey the Taliban because they are the governing authorities? Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed." 
In this passage, you have government according to God's design. Verse 1, delegated authority. Okay? Their authority comes from God. Verse 4, they're God's deacons, it says. That's the word, literally. It's servants, deacons. For your good. Okay, so this is God's authority coming through the governing authorities for your good. Verse 1, then, our default position as Christians should be obedience, submission to the government. Why? Verse 5, to avoid God's wrath. Because if government representing God using his authority and telling you what is good and they're right about it, then when you disobey the government, you're disobeying God. You're incurring God's wrath. So obey the governing authorities for the sake of God's wrath and also, verse 5, for the sake of conscience. Your conscience, as it is trained by God's word, should tell you to obey the governing authorities when government is functioning the way it's supposed to, the way it's characterized here in Romans chapter 13. Because verse 3 and 4, government is supposed to reward the good and punish the evil. That's what it's supposed to do. That's the definition of government according to God. So verse 6, those who operate the government are ministers. Literally the word there is the word that we get liturgy from, worship. It's the word that you would use to describe those who lead worship in the temple. Government officials are ministers because when they carry out governmental functions according to God's design, that's an act of worship. And when you obey them, you are worshiping along with them. So this passage is describing government when it's functioning according to God's design. Now, Sidebar, civil government is not the only government. There's self-government, family government, church government, and civil government that are all given by God in Scripture. We don't have time to go into all of these this morning, but we've talked about this before. This is the principle then of sphere sovereignty. Every government given by God has a sphere of authority, and they're the rightful authority in that sphere. And when they overstep into somebody else's sphere, then they've gone beyond the bounds of what God has said for them. They're all delegated by God. They all represent God. But one sphere may not encroach on another. Let me give you an example of this historically. The Cambridge Platform was a document that expressed how the congregational churches, beginning in Massachusetts, but in the colonies, would govern themselves. And it was an important document that helped to form how the state of Massachusetts would view the relationship between the state and the church, eventually. This is predating. Okay? But one thing the platform said was this. The power and authority of magistrates is not for the restraining of churches or any other good works, but for helping in and furthering thereof. So they recognize the civil government has no authority to step in and start restraining the church. So authority is limited to the purposes given by God. I've used this example before, but hopefully it's a helpful one because it's so obvious. We say, as a church, that we hold to the Bible's design for the family. So husbands are to be leaders in the home. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. So the husband is the leader in the home. The wife is to submit to his leadership. What's that leadership supposed to look like? Sacrificial love. So when everything's functioning the way it's supposed to, that's a harmonious relationship that is for everyone's good. So if the husband in leadership says, we're going to go to church, that's a good exercise of his leadership. If the husband says to the wife, I want you to rob the convenience store, I'm the husband after all, and God has put me in charge, that's not a good use of his leadership, and she should disobey. Now, that's obvious, right? Because that would violate a scriptural command. Don't steal. Respect private property, all those things. But what about when it's something that's not a scriptural command? What about if the husband says to the wife, I want you to stand on your head for 10 minutes? It's morally wrong with standing on your head. Of course not. So she should do it, right? No. That's not what his authority is for. He's overstepping the bounds of what God has designed his authority to be. Now, transfer that, for instance, into the church realm. If the elders of Icon Church said that every man in this church has to wear a green suit and a pink tie on every Tuesday, do you have to do it? Of course not. We don't have the authority to do that. That's not what our authority is for. And the same thing is true in the civil realm. And I don't understand why so many Christians cannot get that through their head. So many Christian leaders today act as if the authority of the civil government is to be obeyed absolutely and without question unless it's a direct violation of a command of scripture. No, the civil government has a realm of authority that is given to it by God and it may go that far and no further. And when it goes further, you are no more responsible to obey it than the rest of the men in here are responsible to wear a green suit and a pink tie on Tuesdays, or a wife is to stand on her head for 10 minutes because her husband said so. Okay, so are we to obey the civil authorities? When the government goes bad, when the government becomes tyrannical, when the government oversteps its authority, let me just ask you a series of questions from Romans 13. So you look at the text... And I will ask questions, and hopefully these come out as rhetorical questions, okay? If their authority comes from God, verse 1, they are to be obeyed, are they to be obeyed, when they cease to represent him? If the authorities are themselves resisting what God has appointed, and you follow them, who are you really resisting, verse 2? Verse 3, when rulers become a terror to good conduct rather than being a terror to bad conduct, are you doing what is good by seeking their approval? Still in verse 3, when you do what God says is good and you receive from your rulers not approval but disapproval or punishment, should you obey them? Verse 4, are they actually being God's servants or God's deacons when they act as tyrants? Or when they cease to act for your good, should they still be obeyed? 
When those who do wrong don't need to be afraid, verse 4, because the rulers won't punish evil, should those leaders still be obeyed? When rulers carry out not God's wrath, but their own, uh, not on the wrongdoer, verse 4, but on the one who does right, should that leader be obeyed? If one reason, verse 5, for being in subjection to rulers is to avoid God's wrath, but the leaders are incurring God's wrath by their rule, should you obey? Or would that actually mean that you are incurring God's wrath by complying with them? If another reason for being in subjection to rulers, verse 5, is for the sake of conscience, should you violate your conscience in an effort to be subject to rulers? Or is God calling you to obey your conscience when your rulers are doing the opposite? If government service, verse 6, is to be an act of worship because they are God's ministers, then is it true worship or true service when government officials oppose God or dishonor him? And should you submit to it? If a government official is owed respect, verse 7, because he serves according to God's design, does a government official who does the opposite deserve your respect and obedience? Remember, the author of this passage is Paul. Paul, who, when the governing authorities wanted to take him into custody, went over the city wall and escaped. Paul, who intentionally disobeyed the city authorities in Philippi, and then when they sent a message to him telling him he was actually free to go, he embarrassed them publicly, called them in, confronted them, and then disobeyed them again. That's the author of this passage. And you need to keep that in mind as you interpret Romans 13. Quick tour of church history, beginning with the Reformation on this topic. John Calvin looked at God's giving of the covenant at Mount Sinai, Exodus 18, and observed that God, through Moses, asked the people three times for their agreement to the covenant. So Calvin concluded two important things. Number one, because Moses awaited the consent of the people, government is to be by the consent of the people. No one is to rule except by the approval of the people, and there are to be no tyrants. Number two, government is by covenant or contract, or to put it in our modern language, constitution, between the ruler and the people. Both are held to the terms of the covenant or the contract. Notice, in our own American history, the two most important founding documents are both covenant-related. The Declaration of Independence is a divorce document detailing why the American colonists were no longer held to the covenant with the king because the king had broken the covenant. And the Constitution, then, is a new covenant forming the new nation. So when you hear covenant, you know how that applies in our own situation. Around the same time as Calvin, a French Huguenot, writing under the pen name of Junius Brutus, wrote a very important book called Vindiciae Contra Tyrannos, which means a defense of liberty against tyrants. And he added that not only is there a covenant between the ruler and the people, but the covenant is actually also with God because God's the one who's instituted government. So if the ruler fails in the covenant, again, the covenant is broken and void. 
his contemporary Christopher Goodman wrote a book called How Superior Powers Ought to Be Obeyed of Their Subjects and Wherein They May Lawfully by God's Word Be Disobeyed and Resisted. And he argued that if a ruler violates the covenant, resistance to that ruler is justified. Heinrich Bullinger, who worked with Calvin, said that ultimately the Lord will destroy unjust governments by means of his own people. Scottish pastor John Knox said that men who simply obey a tyrannical king or government, because Romans 13, actually give no true obedience at all because they're not obeying God. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote from Knox, but listen, he could be writing about today. For now the common song of all men, particularly Christians, is we must obey our kings, be they good or be they bad. For God has so commanded. But horrible shall be the vengeance that shall be poured forth upon such blasphemers of God, his holy name and ordinance. For it is no less blasphemy to say that God has commanded kings to be obeyed when they command impiety than to say that God by his precept is author and maintainer of all iniquity. True it is, God has commanded kings to be obeyed. But like true it is that in things which they commit against his glory or when cruelly without cause they rage against their brethren, the members of Christ's body, he has commanded no obedience, but rather he has approved, yes, and greatly rewarded such as have opposed themselves to their ungodly commandments and blind rage. If we jump the pond now across the Atlantic over to America, still in colonial days and leading up to the war for independence, Isaac Bacchus was a Baptist pastor, ministered before the American War for Independence, and during it, he argued for the right of conscience. He says rulers don't have the right to enforce their judgment against someone's conscience. And that phrase, the right of conscience, or sometimes you'll read the sacred right of conscience, shows up over and over and over in the writings of the American Puritans, the Pilgrims, and the Founding Fathers, because it comes out of the theology of the Reformation grounded on the Word of God. Ezra Stiles was president of Yale. He taught that the right of conscience and private judgment is unalienable. What does he mean by that? He means it's an inherent right. It belongs to you and no one can take it away. Why? It's pre-political. It comes before any rights that the state might have because it's related to being created in the image of God. And mankind was in the image of God before there was human government. Pastor John Leland argued from the fact that there's a future judgment that we will all face. He wrote, every man must give an account of himself to God. And therefore, every man ought to be at liberty in a way that he can best reconcile his conscience. If government can answer for individuals at the day of judgment, then let men be controlled by it in religious matters. Otherwise, let men be free. And this was a matter of utmost importance to our founding fathers. When George Mason included an article providing for religious toleration in the Virginia Declaration of Rights, James Madison opposed it. Why would he oppose religious toleration? because he believed that the word toleration dangerously implied 
that religious exercise according to conscience was merely a privilege that could be granted by the state or taken away by the state. Instead, Madison wanted to be clear, this is a natural, inalienable right beyond the reach of civil magistrates and subject only to a free conscience. George Washington wrote to a Hebrew congregation to explain that the First Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing freedom of worship, applied fully to them, even though they were not Christians. And he wrote to them, he says, all possess alike liberty of conscience. What they were all arguing for was in line with standard Orthodox Protestant Christian teaching. The Westminster Confession of Faith clearly stated that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. So why would we spend time today thinking about Romans chapter 13 and what it's arguing and how church leaders throughout history have understood this? Like I said earlier, our default position as Christians should be obedience. But not always. And in our day, in our church, and in the evangelical world, the sense that I have is that we tend toward obedience to government rather than obedience to conscience. And the only explanation I have for that is that we fear man more than we fear God. So I will spend my time this morning pushing us to think about what it looks like to follow your conscience in the public square when your conscience puts you at odds with the governing authorities. And on the one hand, we are not all going to land in the same place on the specific issues because our consciences are different and God puts each of us in different circumstances. So when I bring up specific issues this morning, it's not because I'm trying to sway you toward my way of thinking on a particular issue. It's to illustrate the struggle of conscience that you're going to have to deal with. I want to push you to think about the fact that there will come a time when it is your duty to follow your conscience rather than your rulers. Will you be ready? Will you know why it's right to follow your conscience? Okay, that's the introduction. You ready to begin? Five things. Number one, following your conscience in interposition. 1 Kings 12, interpose means to place yourself between two things. Let me start again with a question. Should the German soldiers in Nazi Germany in 1938 have been willing to disobey their orders? Answer that question in your head. All right, 1 Kings 12, you don't have to turn there. Some of these I'm going to summarize and some of them I'll have you turn to. This one I'll just summarize because it's a long story. Toward the end of his life, King Solomon had become a bit of a tyrant. And by the way, I'm not trying to keep you away from the text. Feel free to turn there, and I encourage you to read it later. Okay? So Solomon had become a bit of a tyrant by the end of his life. And after his death, his son Rehoboam became king. But Jeroboam came to Rehoboam. And Jeroboam was representing the ten northern tribes. And he said, look, your dad was becoming a tyrant. He says, quote, he made our yoke heavy. In other words, he made it difficult for them to go about their business. Not that that was violation of a particular command, but he's being tyrannical. If you lighten those burdens, Jeroboam says to Rehoboam, we will serve you faithfully. Implied then is, but if not, 
So Rehoboam takes counsel with the older men who've been around for a while, his advisors, and they tell him, Jeroboam is right. You should do what he says. But Rehoboam rejected their advice and he listened to the foolish younger men. And so he told Jeroboam that he was actually going to be more demanding than his father had been. So the northern ten tribes left and made Jeroboam their king. When Rehoboam took his army and marched on them, God sent the prophet Shemaiah to warn him that Jeroboam was in the right and he should not attack. So they ended up both going home and now Israel is a divided kingdom. The ten tribes of Israel in the north, the two tribes of Judah in the south. Jeroboam's actions are an example of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. When a civil ruler demands something immoral or tyrannical, a lower civil official should intervene, interpose himself between the ruler and the people for the protection of the people. That doctrine was formally stated in 1550 in Magdeburg, Germany, by a group of Lutheran pastors in the Magdeburg Confession. It's worth reading. And the reformers developed it further from there. But today, for instance, you can see that doctrine in action in our own country, regardless of faith, when, for example, a sheriff refuses to enforce a mandate that is not lawful. Shutdown mandate, mask mandate, whatever it is. When a sheriff says, I'm not going to enforce that, that sheriff is enacting the doctrine of lesser magistrates opposing tyranny from another authority. John Knox argued that assistance should not be given to a tyrant. When the Queen of England acted tyrannically, and Knox is Scottish, but he spends time in England, and so he's dealing with the English queen here, he writes, let such as assist her take heed what they do, for assuredly her empire and reign is a wall without foundation. Now, many of our Christian leaders today are guilty of doing what Knox warned about aiding and supporting a government authority in their tyranny. When Knox, now going over to Scotland, when Knox pressed the nobles of Scotland to interpose themselves on behalf of the people against their queen, he did it by pointing to the story of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 38. Jeremiah gets thrown in a pit by the king. And Ebed-Melech, who is a member of the king's court, goes to the king to plead on Jeremiah's behalf and he's able to save Jeremiah's life. So Knox, using that story, said, it is the duty of every man in his vocation, but chiefly of the nobility, to oppose tyranny. In other words, if you have a role of authority in a state or an organization, you have a responsibility to stand up for those underneath you. So how about you? Do you have a role in government? Do you have a role in a company where you have people under you? What is your responsibility to those people? When leadership becomes tyrannical, how should you respond? And if your conscience is informed by God's word, as we talked about last week, what is your conscience telling you? Have you put the question to your conscience? It's easy for us in hindsight to look back at Nazi Germany and ask why the German soldiers did not interpose themselves between evil rulers and the people. It's harder to see in our own day the lines that our own leaders are crossing, the creeping acquisition of power that does not rightly belong to them, 
and the tyrannical demands that seem maybe somewhat innocuous when you just consider one thing on its own, but when you put them all together, as the Declaration would say, a long train of abuses, they're quickly eroding the people's ability to act with freedom of conscience. And we need to be asking ourselves what our consciences would have us do. Second, following your conscience in subversion. Exodus 1. Go ahead and turn to this one. Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 to 21. Exodus 1, 15 to 21. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Is it right for people to sneak Bibles into North Korea? There is no command in Scripture that says everyone needs to have a Bible or that you're responsible to own a copy of the Bible. And the government in North Korea, the governing authorities, as Romans 13 would call them, will punish you for having one. All right, Exodus 1, verses 15 to 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So Pharaoh, who is the governing authority, gives a command to the Hebrew midwives that they must kill any baby boy, but they disobey. Now, on the surface, it would be easy to just dismiss this story by simply saying, well, of course they disobeyed because it would be wrong to murder. But that doesn't prove that it's right for us to be subversive of the government. But let's take a very careful look at the text. First, why did the midwives do what they did? Verse 17, the midwives feared God. That's why they did what they did. Second, how did they respond when Pharaoh questioned them? The answer, verse 19, is that they lied to Pharaoh. They said this happened because the women gave birth before they got to them. That's not true. Verse 17 tells us that what happened is they disobeyed because they feared God. So they lied to Pharaoh. Third, how did God respond to what the midwives did? Well, verse 20, God, God dealt well with the midwives. He blessed them. And verse 21, he gave them families. Fourth, why did God respond by dealing well with them? Verse 20 indicates that God didn't deal well with them despite the fact that they lied to Pharaoh. God dealt well with them because they lied to Pharaoh. The midwives were actively undermining or subverting the governing authority. Again, John Knox is helpful to us here. He pointed to the story of Noah and to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah to show that when God's judgment falls, the flood or the fire and brimstone, that judgment includes those who were not themselves tyrannical but did not stand against it. 
And Knox explained that the fact that we are created in the image of God necessarily implies that we have the right of resistance when we're following our conscience. That's because we're all equally in God's image, created with a conscience and the ability to reason and decide. So Knox is honoring the image of God in mankind. The Hebrew midwives were honoring the image of God in mankind in their subversion of government. Our government does not honor the image of God in man. And that's important because the policies and the mandates coming down the pike are not based on a Christian worldview or thinking. So as you, as you ask yourself questions of conscience and consider them, you need to keep in mind that the worldview of our governing authorities is not a biblical worldview. Now you might want to argue that the CDC and the FDA and Dr. Fauci and his National Institutes of Health are not actually governing authorities. But they're part of the governing system and they have assumed for themselves authority that does not belong to them. And those who have the rightful authority are not stopping them. So yes, they have authority, though it's illegitimate. So they're functioning as authorities. But let me give you one simple example of the worldview thinking of Dr. Fauci and the NIH. The NIH, under the direction of Dr. Fauci, granted $3.2 million in federal funds to the University of Pittsburgh so that the university could become a fetal tissue collection site. And documents that are released from the agreement between them shows that they are collecting tissue from babies up to 42 weeks. There are babies being aborted alive and their organs harvested while their hearts are still beating, kidneys removed, that's currently happening just across the state line. Now, how is that relevant to COVID-19 and policies and mandates? Let me give you two ways. Number one, do you believe Dr. Fauci when he speaks of the motive of saving lives? You shouldn't. His worldview is absolutely antithetical to a biblical worldview. So his reasoning is not the same as ours. His assumptions are not the same as ours. And you should keep that in mind when you consider anything that he says or those organizations. Second, and here's an example of, a, I'm not, my point here is not to deal with the issue itself, but to raise the questions that come along with it, okay? Every vaccine available in the United States was either developed from fetal cells derived from an abortion or was tested on cells derived from an abortion. Not a recent abortion, but some would view that as fruit from the poison tree to benefit today from something like that, even though it's long in the past. In fact, a group of Catholic bishops sent a letter to President Trump asking him not to proceed with this kind of development or experimentation, but the Trump administration did not listen. Now, there's a legitimate discussion to be had about how many degrees of separation from something like that needs to be there before a Christian rightly participates in it. And I, I truly mean that's a legitimate discussion and I'm not trying to answer that and I'm not trying to say nobody should get a vaccine. That's not my argument this morning. But what I wanna say is this, it certainly is reasonable that someone's conscience could object 
to the vaccines, all of which fit those categories. So if your conscience tells you that you should not benefit from this, what will you do if you face a vaccine mandate? I'm not this morning taking a position on that. You might be able to go ahead with a clear conscience or you might object on other grounds altogether. I'm simply raising the question that you and your conscience need to be prepared to engage. And trying to demonstrate that the government has no business deciding it. It very well may be the case that should you find yourself in a position to subvert a government that acts in this way, that might be the right thing for you to do. Number three, following your conscience in deception, Joshua 2. Here again, I'll just summarize, but let me ask a question first. Consider the current situation in Afghanistan. Would you approve of an American teacher showing false papers to the Taliban in order to escape the country? And if you would approve of that, then you would agree that there comes a point where deception is permissible. The question then is not whether or not deception is ever allowable, but at what point does it become a good thing? Joshua 2, the Israelites sent spies into the city of Jericho in preparation for taking the land that the Lord was giving them. Rahab, who lived in Jericho, hid the spies and then lied to the king and told him that they had left the city. So the spies and Joshua rewarded Rahab by protecting her family when they attacked the city. Joshua 6.25 says that she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She was rewarded for protecting the spies by hiding them and lying to the governing authority. And the Hebrew midwives and Rahab are not the only examples of deception that are commended in Scripture. In Joshua 8, God's strategy that he gives to Joshua to take the city of Ai involves deceiving the people of Ai by leading them into an ambush. That's deception and it's God's plan. In 1 Samuel 1, David deceived the king of the Philistines into thinking that he was crazy so that that king would let him go. 2 Samuel 12, Nathan lies to David and tells him a story about a man who stole a sheep David really thinks he's telling him a true story because David makes a ruling on it and gives a judgment before Nathan says, I made that up. To show you the truth of what's going on in your life, David. But doesn't the Bible say we shouldn't lie? Yes, sort of. Exodus tells us not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Colossians 3 tells those in the church not to lie to one another. And God is a God of truth, and so he proclaims that he speaks truth. And we're to be people of truth. And he hates lying. Those are all generally true statements. We're to speak the truth and nothing else. But those instructions are all designed to maintain proper relationships as God has designed them to be. But sometimes relationships deteriorate to the point where people become legitimate enemies. That's why we can say that it would be okay to show false papers to the Taliban in order to get out of the country. On a much more trivial and small scale, it's also why it's okay for the quarterback of your favorite NFL team to make a head fake in order to fool the defender. That's deception. 
It's why it's okay to paint your tank with camouflage. That's deception. Truth builds trust. But when you're already at war, deception is appropriate. The question is, has the covenant or the contract been broken or, att or attacked? And if it has been seriously breached, then deception may be an appropriate strategy. So the Biden regime has already raised the possibility of banning interstate travel unless you have the proper papers. Well, first of all, that would be unconstitutional as well as immoral. It would be a breach of the covenant. So open resistance is a great option, but it may come to deception as well. So are fake vaccine IDs appropriate? What if you can't get groceries if you don't have them? Well, if it comes to that, my conscience will have no problem approving of that strategy in this war. Next one, following your conscience in rebellion. Second Kings 11. And I'll summarize this one as well, but let me ask you a question. Was it morally justified for the American patriots to fight against England in the Revolutionary War? Was it morally justified for the American patriots to fight against England in the Revolutionary War? They were citizens of England, but they chose to rebel against the king. Were they justified? Could they do that with a clear conscience? 2 Kings 11 tells the story of Queen Athaliah being replaced by Joash. Athaliah was an evil woman who had married into the royal family in Judah. And when her son, the king, died, she took the opportunity to slaughter the rest of the royal family so that she could rule instead. The only one she missed was the young child, Joash, who was hidden away in the temple by his nurse for six years. And once he was old enough, Joash was brought out and enthroned by the priest Jehoiada, who was loyal to the royal family of David's descendants. When Athaliah heard what had happened, she cried out, treason, treason. But Jehoiada's plan continued, and Athaliah was executed. That's a rebellion against the governing authorities. Now, most of our current Christian leaders, if they had been there, would have told Jehoiada, no, you can't do that. Athaliah is the governing authority, Romans 13. You've got to submit. But the Bible is clear that Athaliah was evil. And the actions of Jehoiada in leading a rebellion against her were right. 2 Kings 11 and verse 20 says, So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. And regarding Jehoiada himself, who led the rebellion, 2 Chronicles 24 tells us Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death and they buried him in the city of David among the kings. That's honor, even though he wasn't a king, because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. There are times when rebellion is the proper course of action and our conscience needs to be fine-tuned by God's word to know when that is. Junius Brutus, again, explained regarding this story of Athaliah that we have to think in terms of the covenant that a ruler has with his people. All the people of the land from Jehoiada on down participated in deposing Athaliah. The covenant had been broken and they knew they would incur God's wrath by tolerating her rule indefinitely. So they were loyal to God 
in rebelling against her. Now, the most popular Bible of the day back then when he was writing was the Geneva Bible, and it explained in a note on this story, where a tyrant and an idolater reigneth, there can be no quietness, for the plagues of God are ever among such a people. John Zmirak and Jason Jones, in an article called God, Guns, and Government, explain that the right of self-defense and resistance to tyranny is rooted in Judeo-Christian revelation. In other words, the Old Testament. Exodus 22 explains legitimate killing in self-defense. David Kopel is a law professor. He had a book called The Morality of Self-Defense and Military Action. He writes, it's instructive that James Madison and the First Congress placed religious rights and arms rights next to each other when they wrote the Bill of Rights. To Locke and the American founders, the right to free exercise of religion and the right to revolution were inextricable. And by the way, I just heard somebody say this yesterday. I thought it was helpful. When we as Christians make an appeal to the Constitution of the United States, that is not a secular argument. That's a legitimate argument for Christians to make because we're talking about a covenant. God is Lord of all, and covenants are to be honored. So the founders, building on the Christian tradition coming down through the Reformation, were clear that rebellion was a legitimate, a last resort, but legitimate response to tyranny. And it's not just about religious issues. Religious freedoms can't be separated from other freedoms. The kingdom of God is the thing that matters most, but because the kingdom of God matters, it all matters. John Witherspoon was a Scottish-American Presbyterian pastor. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote, there is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved entire. If, therefore, we yield up our temporal property, we at the same time deliver the conscience into bondage. You want to be able to follow your conscience? You need to preserve your civil liberties as well. They're related. Fifth one, following your conscience in disobedience. Matthew 22, go ahead and turn there with me. Matthew 22, we're going to look at verses 15 through 22. Matthew chapter 22. Let me ask you several questions as you're turning there. Was it right for Austrian citizens to help Jews escape Nazi territory? They were disobeying government authorities. Would it be right for you to help me escape to Canada if the government comes after me for things I say. I'd like to think that there are some of you who would be willing. Not that I plan to go to Canada. It's kind of worse there right now. If a mandate comes down that denies bodily autonomy and says you must receive this treatment, are you obligated to obey that? If it becomes illegal to buy certain Safe and effective medications like, say, ivermectin for human use. Is it permissible to find a friendly, common-sense veterinarian? These are questions of just how far obedience to government is demanded. 
when is your conscience right to tell you to disobey? Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. A familiar story. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. All right, a few observations. First of all, there are things that rightly belong to the state. God has given the state a legitimate sphere of authority. For example, taxes. Though we should keep in mind that when God warned his people what would happen if they took a king, one of his warnings was he's going to tax you incredibly heavily, a ridiculous amount. And what was that ridiculous amount that God warned them about? It was, wait for it, 10%. Can you imagine a ruler so arrogant that they would take to themselves the same amount that God required for himself? But Jesus says the tax belongs to Caesar. How do you know what things Caesar may rule over? Caesar has authority over this coin because it has his image on it. So Caesar gets to say what happens with the coin. There are certain things that belong to God. So you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to God. And by the way, one of the things that belongs to God is Caesar. How do you know what belongs to God? Well, apply the same rule that Jesus gave you with the coin. You know that Caesar has authority to take the tax because the coin has his image. Well, what bears God's image? You do. So God has authority over you. You belong to God. And here's the crucial thing to realize. If you belong to God, then you do not belong to Caesar. Caesar has no right to touch you. Yourself, your mind, your body, it all belongs to God. So think about what that means for your mind. You may not think the way that Caesar tells you to think. Your mind belongs to God. Think about what it means for your heart. You may not love the things that Caesar tells you to love. Your heart belongs to God. Your loyalty belongs to God. Think about what that means for your body. You may not offer your body for what Caesar tells you. Your body belongs to God. Ask your conscience. That may have implications in our day and age. You may not give to Caesar what God says belongs to him. And this is not the only passage where we would get this idea. Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. Peter and the others are told to stop preaching the truth about Jesus. And what do they say? We must obey God rather than men. When Daniel disobeyed Darius's decree about prayer, he told the king, Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, O king, I have committed no crime against you. Breaking an unjust law is no crime in God's eyes. 
The author of Hebrews, speaking about Moses' parents hiding him from Pharaoh, says that that was an act of faith. Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. For many of us, it goes against what we were taught to think that disobedience to the government may be obedience to conscience. Calvin's helpful here again. He writes, But in that obedience which we have shown to be due the authority of rulers, we are always to make this exception, indeed, to observe it as primary, that such obedience is never to lead us away from obedience to him to whose will the desires of all kings ought to be subject. How absurd would it be that in satisfying men you should incur the displeasure of him for whose sakes you obey men themselves. It was right for the Austrian citizens to help the Jews. It would be right for you to help me escape too if I was acting according to conscience and you were acting according to your conscience because obedience to God supersedes obedience to men. So over the last couple of weeks, we've learned what the conscience is and how God designed it to function in all mankind. We've seen the importance of training our conscience by God's word. We've learned how to have a conversation with our conscience, and we've learned how to keep a good conscience. And today we've talked about the conscience in the public square, specifically when your conscience differs with the governing authorities. And hear me clearly, the default position of the Christian should be submitting to government, obeying the government authorities. But when government opposes God's word or when the government becomes tyrannical, conscience may rightly lead the Christian to act against the governing authorities. That's not something that should be done lightly. And we're right back again to how crucial it is that we train our conscience according to God's word. I'd like to finish by once again saying that our conscience should ultimately point us to Jesus. I mentioned two weeks ago what William Gurnall said, peace of conscience is nothing but the echo of pardoning mercy. In other words, peace of conscience flows out of the gospel. The work of Christ is what allows conscience to be satisfied because the righteousness of Christ covers us. My conscience will rightly tell me that I have sinned, that I deserve punishment. And when I go to Jesus for forgiveness, he promises to do so. So my conscience can be clear because Jesus gives me his righteousness. In his death on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty of my sin. When I look to him in faith, he forgives my sin. He dresses me in his own righteousness. So God looks at me as righteous and I can have peace of conscience and I can work hard to live in alignment with my conscience and therefore in obedience to God. Lord, I pray that as we consider these words, what I have said that, if there's something that I have said that is against what you are telling us, that it would be quickly and easily forgotten. But that what is faithful to your word would challenge us this morning. It would push us to be willing to answer these questions of conscience honestly. And that you would, 
as, as we are grounded in your word, you would develop in us the courage that will be necessary to act according to conscience, even if that means disobedience to government authorities. We want our governing authorities to be authorities that can always be respected and obeyed. That means that they would be following you and thinking like you and ruling like you rule. But we recognize that is not the case. And so we pray for governing authorities who would do that. We pray for revival in our nation, that you would turn this around, that rulers who reject you would be thrown out, and that rulers who honor you would be installed. That there would be this harmony of relationships in our country where the government is ruling in such a way that people of Christian conscience can easily and heartily obey. But until that's the case, would you give us eyes to see as you do? Give us a sensitive conscience and the courage to follow it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.